taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Ronan, Montana, and Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, this is a Bellator Christie Podcast, starting off with the Word of the Lord. Uh, this week it comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which says... For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government of, of will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there you have it, everyone. That's pretty much the 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 last go round of our of our uh, series that we got on here now. Which is the which is the prophecy, the messianic prophecies? Only this one is in the major prophets, and what Brian just read to you, pretty much can just shut everything down right there. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go ahead and jump right in because this one is going to be long, so we don't have much time for that. I do want to mention though that if you had less listened to the last week's podcast, you'll hear you'll hear uh, the essence of James White. Um, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> A, a video um, that was put out um, as kind of just a fun little spoof, um, and it was hilarious. So if you have a chance, check it out. It's funny. You can look it up on uh, YouTube for under the essence of James White, and you just get a little giggle out of it. Curtis, before we start, too, I want to mention, you made mention of something on last week's podcast that I want to go back and just leave a little comment because I thought you brought up a good point about about the prophecies that were have been given and the prophecies that are given coming ahead. And what, what I'd like to, to, to remind everyone is, you know, Jesus tells us that, you know, while there may be signs and things that we can look to, that no one really knows the coming of the, of the day or of his time, of his appearing, except for the Father alone. But there are signs that we can look for, things of that nature. But, but I just want to simply say this. As we've looked at this portrait, and, and we'll continue to do so this week, as we see this portrait, as, as all the pieces of the puzzle are aligned together, it, we ask ourselves, how did the people miss it? Um, well, you know, you, they had this information all along, but they ne- the, the, the God did things in ways that were there, but they didn't see it until after it happened. And I think that the second coming of the Lord is going to be a lot like that. I think we have a lot of information telling us mm. the signs and things to look for, but uh, when it actually happens, I think, and when it all comes to comes to, to place and comes to an end, we're going to look back at the scriptures and say, "Oh yeah, I see what you did there." You know, I don't think we're going to completely get everything together, with, you know, with the way the things are going to come in the end. But I think we can ha- look for the signs and have a, a, an understanding of what to look for, uh, even though we may not catch all the details of what God's going to eventually do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's powerful. Good encouragement, and you know the the thing about it is, the thing about it is, to to always be, and and that could be, <laughs> it could be a very good picture for us to pay attention to, is is the parable that was given about the 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 virgins that had their wicks 
trimmed and ready mm. to be prepared to know that we uh, stand ready at the time that our our master leaves and comes back or, or is coming back that we can then be be ready to be be part of that um, basically part of that entourage um, to welcome him back and it, I, I'm struggle with this because I, I, I you know being a rancher and being just a dad of the kids that we have and just being part of just life in general and and I can understand where people just get so to speak wrapped up in their day to day um but but I think God leaves things for us to recognize like the moments that we may take um outside recognizing the stars at night um like the time that we recognize the early morning when we sit down and we're reading a scripture with a cup of coffee or or just conversations with friends that we pause take a minute and just just relish in the moments that that we are not alone there there were people that have gone before us that that wondered the same thing mm-hmm. all the way through all the way through human history that have wondered what does this mean you know I mean, really, Brian. You think about it. it the the prophets and the and those they inquired to what what we have now. They inquired into what the heck they were saying, what they mm-hmm. were writing down, and they were looking to the cross. You know, and we're looking back at the cross. So they were looking for God's God's provision going coming to them and we're looking from god's provision for us Mm. it's the focal point is the cross amen yeah good stuff so let's go ahead and just jump right in so last week we covered the minor prophets um this week we're going to cover the major prophets so who were the major prophets well, as we mentioned last week, the, the the term major and minor only refer to the size of the works, not mm-hmm. not the importance of the prophets. The minor prophets are every bit as important as the major prophets are because, uh, as we've seen in the last from last week's podcast, they are chocked full. I mean, Zechariah. Zechariah is probably yeah. my favorite. Uh, my favorite minor prophet, uh, Amos is is one of them too. But Zechariah is just so rich, uh, so chocked full of 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 information of concerning the Messiah and end times. So they're very important. But however, with the major prophets, uh, you see these very large works spanning over an illustrious career. Uh, now I want to say from the outset, there are some people. Uh, when looking at the book of Isaiah, uh, that they believe that uh, there were four, indiv- three, or sometimes even four individuals who compiled uh, the the book together. I don't buy that. I think there are good, strong reasons for believing in the unity of Isaiah, and so I treat it as such. Uh, you know, I don't see any reason to divide the book up into two or three different sections. But yeah, the major prophets had larger works, but th- that's that's why they're called major. 
yeah. we're talking here about Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and even Daniel. Even though Daniel is considered uh, by some Jewish interpreters as being part of the writings, uh, he is, uh, in Christian circles, considered one of the major prophets. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So, what messianic prophecies can we find in the book of Isaiah? So, oh boy. <laughs> as you may be able to tell, there's a lot in Isaiah. Jesus quotes from Isaiah more than any other prophet. Uh, the New Testament quotes from Isaiah extensively. And again, I don't think there's a reason for treating this like there are three writers. Some people disagree with me, but they can be wrong if they want to. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of people that think that, that uh, there were... What five, four or five writers uh, of the pent of the uh, of the first five books? You know yeah. that Moses didn't write it. You know, yeah, yeah, four it's writers: like, mm. J E P D, the Yahwehist, and there's, uh, yeah, Elohist. That that to me is one of those things where there's one person in the New Testament that can verify what we <laughs> learn or what we know of, and I keep going back to that. It's yeah. Jesus. Jesus verified that Moses said it. And, and not, not trying to get off the topic here, but here again, this is why the resurrection is so true. Because if the resurrection is true, it verifies all that Jesus said and did. And if the resurrection is true, which there's great evidence to suggest it is, then Jesus was the divine Son of God. Uh, that you can say that because uh, it, it verifies all His works and all His deeds, and that also verifies the knowledge He has going back to the Old Testament. So yes. Uh, Jesus himself seems to refer to Isaiah as if it's one one book. But anyhow, there are eight areas <laughs> we want to look at. Mm-hmm. There's a ninth area that we're not going to cover in this podcast. We're going to defer that to the upcoming series we're going to have in spring because it talks more about the Gethsemane experience, the atonement and resurrection. That's that's in Isaiah 52 and 53, the anointed conqueror, and, and chapters 55 and following. We're going to cover all of that coming up in the spring series when we talk about prophecies relating to uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But starting off first in um, Isaiah 4, verse 2, This is uh, talking about the branch of the Lord. It says, On that day the branch of the Lord. Now here again, we've talked about in previous podcasts how the branch is a messianic designation. It's a term referring to the Messiah. The branch of the Lord. How it's extending from the root of God himself. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors. Okay, now here's something interesting. Uh, We've been referring to the work of Walter Kaiser entitled The Messiah in the Old Testament to help keep us grounded and give us, to help us, help the flow of the podcast. Here's something he says that's very interesting because all of this is part of a section talking about how the Messiah is king. And he notes here in verses one, in chapters, pages 156 and 157, that three prophets exhibit four marvelous pictures of the branch, pictures that are often likened to the emphases given to Jesus, the Messiah, in the four Gospels. And catch this. The branch of David in Jeremiah 23, 5-6 
and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later on, is likened to the Matthew's likened to Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the Davidic Messiah. My servant the branch in Zechariah three eight is likened to Mark's presentation of Jesus as the servant. The man whose image, whose name is the branch in Zechariah 6.2 is likened to Luke's presentation of Jesus in the manly and human aspects. And the branch of the Lord, as we see here in Isaiah 4.2, is likened to John's presentation of Jesus as from God. And it's amazing that in three prophets, you find the same imagery that you do in the four Gospels. Hmm. Yeah. So, isn't that funny? <laughs> uh, how that all comes together. You know, um, last week we talked about. Um, we kind of we kind of talked about some of these uh, the 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 minor prophets, and we were in Zechariah, and we were talking about. Um, you know, all of these specific pictures that would be a shadow or a type or, or, you know, maybe not quite clear of what it is. But as we get into Isaiah, these, these things definitely become more, um, pointed, specific, and, and a little, a lot clearer. Mm-hmm. And I, I would even argue that some of the things in like, say, Zechariah, even though some of them are more typological, you know, obviously, they still have, there are still some very poignant, you know, literal interpretations that really point to a Messiah. Now, some people may disagree with me on that, but I really truly believe that Zechariah is richly, uh, richly holds a lot of messianic uh, prophecies in it. But you're right, Isaiah is more direct, I think, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the virgin birth. Okay, so now here is a passage of scripture where the word Alma means uh, it can mean either one of two things. It can mean a virgin or a young woman. But here's the thing: even if it means a young woman, it's talking about an unmarried woman, uh, an unmarried woman who has never had relationship with a man. So essentially, it's saying the same thing. It's it's always right. used in the context of someone who has not been married. Uh, and it's generally assumed that that person still remains pure and chaste. Uh, and so as it's used, that's the way it's intended. Now, there are a lot of things going on with this passage of Scripture. And so he's going back into uh, talking about that this took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jothan, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. And he goes on down that when it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of the people trembled like trees of the forest shaking in the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out with your son Sheer Jashub to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks. The fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah, for Aram along with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has plotted harm against you. They say, Let's go up against Judah, terrorize it, and conquer it for ourselves. Then we can install Tabil's son as king in it. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. The chief city of Aram is Damascus. And he goes on with uh, talking about these um, 
these things that would take place. Then the Lord spoke to again to Ahaz. Ask, okay, now here's where the heart of it comes down. Ask, he tells to Ahaz, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And Ahaz replied. Now Ahaz was not a very righteous man. Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not test the Lord. But he'd already tested the Lord before. <laughs> but he's mm-hmm. given, he's directly said, test the Lord. And he says, I will not test the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, right. house of David. Now this is important. This is important. When he's talking to the house of David, he's using plural language in Hebrew. When he's talking to Ahaz, he's using singular language speaking to him. There's two people being spoken to in this passage of Scripture. Ahaz in the singular tense, the people of David or the house of Israel in the plural sense. Okay, Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, see... The Lord is that singular. Now here's plural. See the Lord Himself. This is talking to the house of David. The Lord Himself will give you a sign. He's not talking to Ahaz anymore. He's talking to the people of Israel or people of David. See the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The name Jesus means God is salvation. God with us. So by the time he learns to reject what is bad and chooses what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of two kings you dread will be abandoned. Okay, here again is where he switches. So he's given them the sign that the virgin will conceive and have a son. And then when he goes down and talks about the boy and then the kings you dread will be abandoned, that's going back to singular language. So the promise given in verse 14, talking about the virgin will conceive, that's the sign given to the house of David using plural language. So that is talking about a future time where God is going to send a sign through a virgin who would conceive and who would have a child who would be God tabernacled with us. And, of course, mm. we know that person to be Jesus. Right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so now a yeah. lot of people will say, well, no, he's talking to Ahaz. But look at the nuances of the passage of Scripture. He's talking to Ahaz, then he starts talking to the house of David because Ahaz wouldn't ask for the sign. He was going to tell him the sign that would later come. He wouldn't do it. So he yeah. th- then talks to the house of David. And so there's a lot of intrinsic things to work through there, but obviously this this sign is given to the house of David, meaning that it is a messianic prophecy. Yeah, and I would just say, you know, like what you're pointing out, context is a big key here. With oh, this absolutely. One. Absolutely. So, so the ruling divine son. Okay, so here we see uh, verses uh, nine, nine uh, excuse me, verses one through seven. The gloom of the distressed land will not be will be like will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. These are northern kingdoms that have been overrun and attacked, assaulted by Assyria. But in the future, it will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan and Galilee of the nations. Here again. This is the area where Jesus ministered to the most. Now, notice he says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus is that light of the world. He gives his light to us so that we can become the light of the world. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. 
You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people rejoice before you as they rejoiced at harvest time, as they rejoice when dividing spoils. When you have a good harvest, you can celebrate because you have abundant um, uh, substance uh, that, that will, will provide food and monetary value and things of that nature. You rejoice when the war ends because it's a time of peace. For you shatter their oppressive yoke and the rod of their on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the days of Midian. He's going back to talk about how Gideon overcame the troops of Midian with just a few small with a few with a small troop, small number of men, he went out and defeated Midian. So likewise the Lord would defeat uh, the, the powers that be with just a few people on his side. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel of fire. This was done when wars had ceased as an offering to the Lord, recognizing that God was the one who brought victory. And for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. means he's going to be a ruler. He's going to reign supreme. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, meaning that he gives perfect counsel to all who seek him. He is called Mighty God. <laughs> now, uh-huh. this gets interesting. He's going to be called Mighty God, okay? But he's also going to be called Eternal Father. What? This guy's going to be linked with the Eternal Father, Everlasting Father, and he's going to be called the Prince of Peace. Mighty God, Eternal Father shows the divine nature of this upcoming uh, prophesied individual messianic figure who would come. And he's also promised to bring peace. And he also, in verse 7, talks about how his dominion will be vast. He will reign on the throne of David and on his kingdom, over his kingdom, uh, now and forever, only, only an eternal person can do that, and the zeal of the Lord's armies, the Lord of armies, will accomplish all of this. So again, this shows the absolute divine nature of this messianic individual that would be to come. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we just got to keep moving here. Does I mean? I'd love to spend more time picking on some of this stuff but we just got to keep moving so the reign of jesse's son so this is going to go back to jesse uh and and the son of david you may may be tempted to sing jesse's girl but it's not jesse's girl yeah (laughs) this is the passage of scripture that jesus read when he was in the synagogue and Uh you remember when whenever uh he read this and he said this has been fulfilled in your hearing this day and so he's reading this the synagogue he says this will be fulfilled in your hearing and then he reads this passage of scripture which says then a shoot here again connected to the branch will grow from the stump of jesse so there's a there's a lineage you see in these prophecies he's got to come from judah he's got to come from david he's got to come from jesse from jesse from david he comes from this lineage um Okay, so, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now, look, it says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and a fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, but he will not execute justice, but 
by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. He will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. That is ultimate power, just by simply speaking and it's done. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. Now, look what happens in the end. This is a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture. The wolf will let, will dwell with a lamb, will lie down with a lamb, and the leopard will lie down with a goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the Lord will be full of the knowledge of the Lord and, and, and the, as the sea is filled with water. And um, anyhow, he goes on to talk about how he will overcome all lands and uh, and that the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for all people. And so we'll, we'll end it there. You know, it goes on down to verse 16, but we'll end it there yeah. with verse 10. Uh, but simply saying that he's going to conquer, overcome all nations. And the spirit of the Lord God would not just temporarily dwell with him, but would permanently dwell in him so that what he speaks comes from the Father, what he judges comes from comes righteously, that he is perfect and he is connected uh, with God the Father himself, and that spirit of the Lord is at, you know driving him all along. Question. I mean, and it's just something to... to maybe stir stew on it and maybe point out but you know john picked up on this and was pointing this out in the book of revelation absolutely yeah so he was tying it together pointing this stuff out so well l- let me just say here you know since you brought that up that's that's l- let's just <laughs> let's just mention this Anyone who thinks that the book of Revelation is not tied to the Old Testament hasn't read the book of Revelation because there are tons of Old Testament motifs flowing through the book of Revelation. And I think this is this is one of them. I think there are several others that could be mentioned. Uh, there again, we could have a podcast series connecting the Old Testament themes through the book of Revelation. Uh, they're, they're just plentiful there. I mean, even to the sim- symbolism that you have in Revelation 12, uh, it's, it's chocked full of Old Testament motifs throughout the book. Yeah. yeah interestingly, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser just got done going through the book of Revelation and that was fun to listen to. Oh, I imagine that so. Was, that was a whole year long worth of going through the book of Revelation. <laughs> I was getting ready to ask Dude. if that was one podcast, but it sounds like it's a series. No, gosh, no. <laughs> no, it was one chapter at a time. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, so let's go into the universal triumph of Messiah. So here just a few verses, Isaiah 24 verses 21 to 25. Again, we could we could talk more 
about this. Uh, th- this talks about, going back to 24, 1 through 3, uh, it talks about the announcement of a future global judgment that will extend everywhere without religious, social, or economic distinctions. For there's no favoritism with the Lord. God is going to judge righteously and fairly. Verses 4 through 6 explain that all the earth, its inhabitants, and especially the proud, the haughty, the uh, the aristocracy, the aristocracy, the, the, how do you say that, uh, the, the higher-ups will all be affected by the coming judgment of God. And the reasons are clear, says, says Kaiser. Humanity has transgressed God's law, changed his statutes, and attempted to frustrate his everlasting covenants. But these efforts themselves will be judged. Okay, and so now we see in verses 21 through 23, On that day the Lord will punish the army of the heights in the heights uh, and the kings of the ground on the ground. They will be gathered together like prisoners in a pit. They will be confirmed to a dungeon. After many days they will be punished. The moon will be put to shame and the sun disgraced because the Lord of armies will reign as king. Now here's that connection. The Lord of armies will reign as king. Okay. Now, we know the Father isn't... That Yahweh isn't in the form of a human being, you know. Now, some people may connect that back to say, "Well, Yahweh is just presenting Himself as the King," but I think it's more than that. I think there is there is that He has a human advocate on Earth, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He will display His glory in the presence of His elders. So there's a universal. Uh, rule that we see through the Messiah. And here again, as we mentioned before, every nation is going to succumb to the power of God's kingdom in the end. So there's nothing wrong with being patriotic. I love our nation. I'm as patriotic as they come. But let's, let's put things in perspective. In the end, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. <laughs> so... The Messiah as the foundation stone. Whew, I tell you what, this is yeah. good stuff here. And man, we yep. are just still in Isaiah 28, uh, verse 16. Let me read this. Therefore the Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. Okay, so here again we see the motif of of uh, the the stone that the builders rejected would become the chief cornerstone. We see several things about this. This is a tested stone; it can be trusted. This is a precious stone; it is valuable, and this is a cornerstone, which means it's a foundation stone upon which building can take place. So this is pointing to the Messiah, uh, God, God's man uh, come in earth, God come in flesh. Mm-hmm. Jesus quoted this, um, you know, you have uh, uh, many a times in Paul's writings, he talks about laying the foundation, uh, the proper foundation um, to build off of. Um, so it's not just, it's not just uh, um, something that's kind of just thrown out there. This is actually part of the New Testament that, that when we read it, we, we are actually being thrown back and thrust back into this portion pointing back at Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Absolutely. So, messianic teacher. 
so I'm not going to read the whole passage of Scripture because it's quite a lengthy passage of Scripture. This is in Isaiah 30, verses 19 through 26. But really, verse 20 uh, is where the focal point is. Uh, it talks about people living in Zion, about how they've gone through times of oppression, uh, but the Lord promises that the Lord will give you meager bread and water during the times of oppression. He's going to give you your needs, but your teacher will not hide any longer. Okay, uh, your eyes will see your teacher, and wherever you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear this command behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Then you will. Then you will defile your silver-plated idols and throw away gold-plated images. Throw away your filthy clothes in like manner. So, God was going to bring about a teacher, and this teacher would be the Messiah. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And what did he come and do? Uh, he was a teacher. <laughs> so Messiah as a servant of the Lord. Okay, so this servant of the Lord, this is an important theme even in the New Testament. Uh, mm-hmm. I, there, there are, I think, early connotations showing that uh, early connections made between Jesus and the servant of the Lord. Now, there are more areas where Isaiah talks of the servant of the Lord than what we have time to discuss tonight on tonight's podcast. But I'm just going to focus on two. Now, when we go to the suffering servant in Isaiah 52, 53, we'll cover that when we come back to this series uh, this spring. I I know a lot of the stuff we're talking about we're having to postpone because that's where we want to focus on specifically the death, burial, resurrection. We'll actually come back to some of the things we mentioned in Zechariah and to some other aspects as well. But this servant of the Lord theme is is all throughout the book of Isaiah. But there's two areas where we want to look. Again, the suffering servant in chapter 53, 52 and 53, that's part of this servant of the Lord motif. But uh, we see the servant's ministry in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 42. It says, This is my servant, I will strengthen him. This is my chosen one, I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The coasts and islands will wait for his instruction. This is what the with this is what uh this is what God the Lord says, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. And so he, God is calling them to righteousness. And he goes on to say that, um, He, I will watch over you. I will appoint you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the nations in order to open blind eyes and bring prisoners from the dungeon and those sitting in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will bring my glory to another or or my praise to idols. Um, and so anyhow, we see the ministry of the Messiah. And when you remember the time when John the Baptist's disciples, actually John the Baptist was imprisoned. He was having a time of doubt. He sent his disciples to Jesus. Jesus performed miracles in their very sight, and then he said, Go tell John what you've seen, that the blind have sight, uh, the prisoners have been loosed, and those in darkness have seen a great light. He's pointing back to this prophecy in this passage of Scripture. 
right and we i won't get into too much of the of the the beliefs at that time period but but they were looking for uh, at that time there was a teaching out uh for them to be looking for actually two messiahs yeah especially among the Essenes, uh, the, the, there were there were some individuals in that time period who believed uh, in, around the Qumran area who believed in a uh, priestly Messiah and a kingly, a king Messiah. And but but here's the interesting thing that we even noticed back in Zechariah. We see it also in Isaiah. But the 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 end Messiah, uh, the the role of priest and king would be united under one person. And that was not something that happened in uh, in biblical days, right. typically speaking. I mean, there were a few exceptions to that, but typically speaking, you had a king and you had a priest. Uh, but this new Messiah would be a priest-king, just as was Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, uh, who anointed and actually uh, 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 anointed Abraham and um, and blessed him. Yeah, and we covered that in uh, in part two of this series. So absolutely. So, the servants' ministry. So Isaiah forty nine, coasts and islands, listen to me, distant peoples, pay attention. The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. He made my words like a sharp sword, hid me from the shadow of his hand. He made me like a quivered arrow, hid me in his quiver. He says, you are my servant uh, Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I myself said I have labored in vain. I spent my strength for nothing in futility. And my vindication is with the Lord, yet my reward is with God. And he goes on to say, and now says the Lord, uh, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. And then he goes on to say in verse 6, he says, It is not enough for you to be my servant, uh, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations. Okay, so look here. He's, he's raising up the tribes of Jacob. He's restoring the protected ones of the saints of Israel. He's, he's a light to the nations. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. What? To be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One says, to one who is despised, to one who abhorred by people, to the servants of rulers. And he goes on to talk about other things there. But the mission would be to raise up the tribes of Jacob, restore the protected ones of Israel, be a light to the nations, and to be salvation to the ends of the earth. Hey, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so we you want to you want to just cover that as a note um, about the Gethsemane? Yeah. So yeah, just just to point out, just to remind people that that uh, in our series in the spring, we're going to come back to Isaiah and we'll look at Isaiah fifty verses four through nine. The Gethsemane experience there, the atonement resurrection. Actually, the resurrection is mentioned in Isaiah 53. It's often missed, but uh, it's there in chapter 53. And the anointed conqueror found in chapter 55 and following. We'll talk about all that coming up in our spring series when we talk about the the, the resurrection, death, burial, resurrection of, of Jesus in the Old Testament prophecies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
yeah so uh, we're gonna have to hurry through this now because we're gonna be running out of time for these people so we might have to shorten some of this down so so does the prophet jeremiah provide any messianic prophecies yeah, so some of these in Jeremiah aren't nearly as long. In fact, we're probably only going to talk about three here. Um, so let's go to 23, verse 5. There's just two verses. Uh, I, no, that's I am in the wrong book. Hold on a second. Let me get over to the right one. That would help. Jeremiah, we're not in Isaiah anymore. We've done. Jer- Isaiah has done left the building. All right, Isaiah 23 is where we are. And verses 5 and 6 says, uh, This is the Lord's declaration. Look, the days are coming uh, when I will raise up a righteous branch for David. Here again, we mentioned this earlier. No use to rehash it. Branch is talking about uh, the the arm of the Lord, this extension of God coming to, to come into earth. I will raise up a righteous branch for David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name he will be called. He will be called the Lord is our righteousness, or Yahweh Zidkinu. Uh, The Lord is our righteousness. Huh. That's, yeah. (laughs) It just points it out. The Lord is our righteousness. I just... We gotta keep moving. But the, 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 uh, the priest king. <laughs> just it's just too tempting. I think. I I just gotta yeah. We gotta just kinda... uh, all right. So in Jeremiah thirty verse nine it says they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And so he's making a connection here. Uh, of one he will raise. Now, so we go over to verse 21. Jacob's leader will be one of them. His ruler will issue from him. So the coming from Jacob here. I will invite him to me and he will approach me for who would otherwise risk his life to approach me. This is the Lord's declaration. So we see here in verse, uh, back in verse 1, uh, that he is a ruler. But here in verse 21, we see that he assumes the role of a priest. So he is both priest and king uh, that we find in Jeremiah. Yeah, yeah. And so then so then, the eternal priest king. So this is in chapter 33, verse 14. Um, and uh, it says, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will fulfill the good promise that I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch. Here again, we see that righteous branch to sprout up for David. He will administer justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is what she will be named. Here again, the Lord is our righteousness. And then um, he goes on to say, for this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man sitting on the throne of the house of Israel. The Levitical priests will never fail to have a man always before me to offer bur- sac- offerings, to, bur- uh, to burn grain offerings and make sacrifices. And so let's just pause there. There's more we could read there, but just to save on time, that's sufficient for what we need to show. Uh, the right. Lord, our righteousness, that righteous branch, that's the Messiah, uh, he is going to sit in the throne of David forever, 
Only an eternal person can do that. Only a, a divine person can do that. And then obviously there he will also serve in the role of a priest. Yeah. Mary, don't cling to me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just pointing stuff out. <laughs> what about Ezekiel? Does he give any uh, messianic prophecies? Yeah, and does he? Uh, one of the biggest things with Ezekiel too is at the end of the book, and, and I still can't. I still have a difficult time figuring the the uh, the eschatological temple, the the messianic temple that's to come, or I guess you could say the millennial temple. Some people call it. Uh, I still cannot figure that one out. I mean, that there's a lot in it. Some of it allegory, some of it literal. It's just, it is a difficult passage to really uh, understand. But let's look, take a look at chapter 17. Um, I'll just say this. I'll let you guys figure that out, you guys that are all in your... <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can tell me. You can tell me and the other layman around here what, 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 what it's about later on. I, I tell you, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there's really any figuring that one out. I mean, there's just a <laughs> lot of complicated stuff there. <laughs> Do you think? Do you think sometimes some of that complicated stuff is actually understood by people that might not have a uh, a complicated worldview? So, so meaning like you're not bringing all these other processes into as you read the scripture. So, so like uh, you're not bringing in philosophical ideas, and you're not bringing in um, you know, all of these, I don't want to say presuppositions, but all of these other worldly things, uh, as you're trying to read the scripture, you're just enjoying the scripture for what it is. Yeah. Well, I, I would say though, that all of us, all of us bring some type of presupposition, you know, regardless of where, where, whether or not we're trained in seminary or whatever or not. We, right. we all bring some presuppositions to us, to the Scripture, and we all bring, we all have a philosophy, we all have a worldview that we bring to the Scripture. The, the important thing is to rightly handle the Word of Truth, and so... I, th I think what happens when we when we dig into philosophy and dig into these higher issues, we begin to expose our own biases. Uh, mm. Because quite honestly, that's what happened to me going through uh, some of the studies I have, understanding where my biases were, and I'm really shocked, um, shocked by some of the things that I had even super super laid upon the scripture even before going into this. So. I, I don't think any of us mm. can escape that. Uh, I, I think that it's important for us to kind of really... I think that's why philosophy is important for us, at least in a grassroots form, to kind of know how to how to think well and how to expose our own influences and make sure that we allow the Scripture to speak to us rather than us speaking to the scripture. I hope that makes sense. Um, yeah, no, that's that's what I was trying to pull out because because I hear it all the time, you know, oh those guys just they're they're just too heady. They think, you know, they're they're way way above our thinking, you know, way above, you know, and I I, I got to say that there's some of that that really 
you you kind of sh- you should have a little bit of philosophical, a little bit sure. of theological a- as you're going through some of this. So as you read it, it's not so hard to grasp. Exactly, and especially the historical studies, when you understand yeah. maybe yeah, yeah. even how some of the symbols were understood in those days, then that mm-hmm. really, I think, helps us to interpret even better what God is trying to speak through the people of that day and time, because he's using the language yep. of the people of that time. But yep. now the problem with Ezekiel in the final temple there's just a lot to unpack there, and there's just a lot mm-hmm. of stuff going on. Um, <laughs> it's 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 really it's really difficult for even Old Testament scholars who are who are really into Ezekiel. Uh, it's really it's really difficult for them to, to work through that. That that is just a difficult passage of scripture all the way through. Yeah, there's 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 people that are into Ezekiel. <laughs> <laughs> as a study, woo. <laughs> well, and in think that's a lifelong that's a lifelong study. Well, and I learned the hard way. I didn't even make it through the entire book of Ezekiel because we had some other things that broke up the Bible study. But <laughs> you got to be careful with certain parts of Ezekiel because <laughs> it can get. I'm not going to say it should be X-rated, but it's definitely R-rated in certain sections. <laughs> As he's speaking to people, uh, it's it's he's got some strong imagery there in certain parts. <laughs> but yeah, because, so there's so there's four things real quickly we'll take a look at. Um, first of all, in chapter 17, the Messiah as a tender sprig. Here again is closely aligned with that branch of the Lord. 22-24, uh, this is what the Lord God says, I will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and plant it. I will pluck a tender sprig from its topmost shoots. I will plant it on a high towering mountain. I will plant it on Israel's high mountain so that it may bear br- branches, produce fruit, and become a majestic cedar. This little sprig will become a majestic cedar. And notice that it's branching out, producing fruit. Birds of every kind will nest under it. Birds of every kind. That's talking about people there. People of every kind will come and nest in the branches of the Lord, taking shelter in the shade of its branches. Then all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the tall tree and make the low tree tall. I cause the green tree to wither and make the withered tree thrive. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. There's just a lot you could go in with that one. Yep, yep. And then, and then you have the rightful king. Yeah, rightful king in 21, verses 25 through 27. Uh, and you profane and wicked prince of Israel, the day has come for your punishment. This is what the Lord God says. Remove the turban, take off the crown. Things will not remain as they are. Exalt the, the lowly and bring down the exalted. And that's a lot what happens in Jesus' ministry. A, a ruin, a ruin, I will make it a ruin. Yet this will not happen until he comes, until the Messiah comes. And I have given the judgment to him. So notice he says, this will not come, happen until he comes. Well, who comes? The Messiah comes, and I have given yeah. the judgment to him. And there are son of man motifs even throughout Ezekiel, but maybe not necessarily the same as Daniel, but they're there. So then you have marked down 
Messiah, Messiah as the Good Shepherd. Here yeah. we go right into this picture again. Yeah, absolutely. And we may not we may not read all of this. I'll read down to uh, probably twenty five to save on time. And, and I, I encourage here we're talking about. Ezekiel 34, 23 through 31. We're going to have the notes here on the podcast. I encourage people to go back and read all of these passages of Scripture in their entirety. This is just amazing stuff. Um, So, uh, back in verse 22, I'll save my flock. They will no longer be prey. I will judge between one sheep and another. But then he says, in verse 23, I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and will be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. He says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate dangerous creatures from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the forest. This this really closely aligns with uh, uh, Isaiah uh, 23 I mean excuse me Psalm 23 and the shepherding ministry of uh, of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And and the last verse of that if you catch it when you when you read through it it says one in the ESV it says here and you are my sheep human sheep of my <laughs> pasture and I am your god. Amen. That's that's one of those things where Right here is that picture where 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 God's painting the the people the 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 people are like sheep and and so what he's painting is you know all of this this uh, it's almost I don't know about you but it's it kind of funny to me because sheep are dumb and yeah. look, so so what so what's implicitly being said there is <laughs> you guys are humans. Just like sheep, you're dumb. <laughs> That'll bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just one of those things. But you, if you think about it, if you if you think about it, we act like that. We we, yeah, we, re- we really do. We we and it's and it's um, we do have a herd mentality. We do have a reactionary mentality. We do have all of these things that that are um, a. a picture so as i see sheep out in the fields and stuff i just kind of giggle and laugh it's like <laughs> wow spot yeah. on he's spot on too yeah 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 so so uh the messiah unifies the nations so i'm going to read the good. first part and last part i'm going to read verses one this is a lengthy passage of scripture Ezekiel 37, 15 through 28 is where we're at. I'm going to read verses 15 down to 19 and then pick up uh, in verse 25 and finish uh, finish out. So, the word of the Lord came to me. This is to Ezekiel. Son of man, take a single stick and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it, belonging to Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. Then join them together into a single stick, so that they have become one in your hand. 
joining together the two nations. And when your people ask you, won't you explain to us what you mean by these things? Tell them, this is what the Lord God says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah. I will make them into a single stick, so that they will become one in my hands. So he's talking about one who will bring them together. He talks about, he's gathering them all around in verses 20 through um, uh, twenty through 23. Uh, cleansing their their uh, transgressions, uh, saving them from their apostasies, driving out uh, the idols and the abhorrent things. And verse 24 says, My servant David will be king over them, and there will be one shepherd for all of them. They will follow my ordinances and keep my statutes and obey them. Verse 24, that's showing that messianic person to come. And then he goes on down to say, they will live in the land that I give my servant Jacob, where your ancestors lived. They will live in it forever with their children and grandchildren. My servant David will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it will, let's look at this. It will be not a temporary covenant. It will be a permanent covenant with them. I will establish and multiply them and will set my sanctuary among them forever. This sounds like something taken. This sounds exactly like what you hear in the book of Revelation. That that's not a coincidence. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Revelation twenty one twenty two. When my sanctuary is among them forever, the nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel. Hmm. Oofta. <laughs> Oofta is so, right. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, Daniel holds some interesting concepts about the Messiah. Oh, Lord, uh, Daniel is just amazing. Yeah, yeah. what does he tell us there? Well, th- there's a bunch. There's a bunch. And honestly, um, when you see the Son of Man sayings in Jesus, um, Joaquin Jeremiah's, Argues, and I wholeheartedly agree with him that the Son of Man is a title that's almost exclusively used by Jesus because you only right. find it in two occasions outside of the Gospels, and one is when Stephen sees when he's being stoned and he sees the the vision of Jesus, one coming like a Son of Man. And he uses that terminology, and there's also another statement in the Book of Hebrews which talks about. Uh, the Son of Man. Outside of those two occasions, you almost exclusively in the New Testament find them in the Gospels used by Jesus Himself. So, anyhow, um, you know there are some like J- James D. G. Dunn who claim and argue that the Son of Man was an invention of the Church. I don't think that it makes no sense. If it were an invention of the Church, if it was an invention of the Church, then the Church would use it extensively. But they don't do that. It's only found in the teachings of Jesus outside of two different occasions. So um, here again, I'm getting kind of some of the stuff in my dissertation, but um, and, and there's a lot of that to come. But when Jesus uses the term Son of Man, he's pointing to this prophecy we're getting ready to read in Daniel right. chapter 7, verses seven, verses 13 through 14. Now, let me pause. Before this, 
Daniel sees different creatures like a shepherd, like a leopard, um, like a bear, uh, 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 these different entities. Uh, and he says that there was one like a certain, well, for instance, in verse 5, a beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. The first one was like a lion. Okay, and this is all, by the way, in Aramaic. Uh, one like a leopard. Okay, uh, so these things were like these different things. Well, here in verses 9 and following, uh, he talks about, I kept watching thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was a flaming fire. Wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming from his presence. And thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousands times ten, ten thousands stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. And he was talking about how the, the sound of the arrogant words, the horn was speaking, talking about the Antichrist, the beast was killed, so on and so forth. And then he goes on down. In verse 13, I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that every person, every people, nation, and language should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, here's the important thing you need to understand about this Son of Man person. This Son of Man person was divine who looked like a human being. These other nations were nations that looked like these beasts. This one, this person, is coming from the Ancient of Days, looks like a divine being, who, who, who is a divine being, let me rephrase that, who is a divine being who looks like a son of man, who looks like a human being. Hmm. That's powerful. Oof. The, <laughs> uh, the time frame of Messiah, the 70 weeks prophecy. Oh, my goodness. I can't That's believe it. This is a big one. This is huge. So already in the prophecies we've examined, We've seen the mission of the, of the Messiah, the person of the Messiah, the, the, the union of priest and king that would happen in the Messiah. We see the peace that would come from the Messiah, the shepherding of the Messiah. We're even given his name in the book of Zechariah as he's combining these two things, Yeshua or Yehoshua or Jesus or Jesus, same name. Now, we're given a time frame of when to expect it. So 70 weeks are decreed, he says, and this is Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree... The time from the decree, the time that the decree was given, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until an anointed one, a Messiah, the ruler, okay, uh, or a prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, okay, seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be rebuilt with a plaza and a moat, 
But in difficult times, after these 62 weeks, okay, the anointed one will be cut off. The anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. The people of the coming ruler will destroy the city and sanctuary. The end will come with a flood. Until the end there will be war, desolations are decreed. He will make a firm covenant. And this is talking about when when the the anointed one is, is cut off. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple and until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. Okay, there is a lot to discuss in this one. And let me go over to my handy-dandy little booklet here uh, and, and try to see if I can find the uh, time frame given here. And um, so we see that there's two segments of times are mentioned as extending from the going forth of the word or decree, seven sevens, okay? At this point, the anointed one, okay, so in other words, during the first period, the streets in the city of Jerusalem will be restored, but after that time, another 62 sets of seven will occur. All right, so let's go back first. Two segments of time, the going forth from the word of decree, 70 sevens and 62 sevens. This is 434 years. Okay, but after that time, another 62 sets of seven will follow, which is a total of 483 years until something significant happens. Okay, so all the conservative interpreters agree on the larger meaning of the passage, even though many differ on the degree of specificity as found here. In other words, the time frame from the point that uh, this prophecy was given correlate to the time that the Messiah would be cut off was around 400, I believe, what was it, 400 and uh, I think 83 years, I think it was. The total would be 490 years, but the 483 years and this, depending on when you put this, it either comes down to the year AD 30 or the year AD 33. Now, I believe the year AD 33 matches better the, the data uh, pertaining to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 3033 AD is only three years' time. But nonetheless, if you hold the 33 year date, it comes down to the time that Jesus entered Jerusalem. Right about the period of time that he entered Jerusalem, that would be 483 years from the time that this prophecy was given. Now, we go on from that. There's Notice that there's a pause. There's a pause between um, the, the, uh, the, 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 the until we get to the 490 years. How long is the gap in the 490 years? We don't know. Uh, there is, there's a, a gap between the time and the abomination of desolation comes. Uh, and that's talking about the time of tribulation that happens. And when the 490 years are brought together in total, uh, that's when the totality of the prophecy will come to a conclusion. And that will be when Jesus, when the, when the uh, uh, millennial kingdom comes through Christ. Yeah. A lot. So, yeah, there's a lot there. And, you know, there's a lot of theories around that the 70 weeks um but i want to just say that you know there there's there's a lot being painted there and there's been a lot of good thinkers and deep thinkers that have thought about this and you know there's 
multiple ways you can go with that with that ending. Um, yeah, and but but I th- I think that um, the most literal, the most mm-hmm. literal to it, if if you're going to take it, you know, literal. I think that you have because with you take the seventy weeks prophecy, it, and like I said, I don't have all the materials here to to really f- to parse that out. But but there is a way where you can figure that with with pretty good precision. So, but but you're talking about you know when you talk about which year it was, uh, you can make it work either way, um, yeah. depending on whether you're you're coming from the time that the decree was given or the time that the temple was rebuilt. But even still, through that, uh, there there is great precision in the time frame uh, given here, and there again, when you talk, you you take a look, you see uh, that there is this there is this pause that happens there when the abomination of desolation right. comes, and some people would take that to be the destruction of 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 Jerusalem by the Romans. I don't think that matches what's being said. I think that's talking about that final end time. Uh, that, that comes through um, the um, the Antichrist, quite frankly. But anyhow, the interesting thing is is you have this time frame that's really pointing to when Jesus would come, and and what we find through this is that if Jesus is not the Messiah, then there won't be one because his coming, the the, the timing of his separation when he was cut off. The timing of his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection matches this this prophecy far too perfectly for yeah. for uh, for anyone else to be able to consider be a be even a be even a contender, quite frankly. Yeah. So the final thing here, um, as we wrap up this Christmas series um, on the prophecies, what insight do you have concerning prophecy, and what is it? What is what it tells us about the unity of the entirety of Scripture. Before I answer that question, let, let me go back to one more thing here, just to point out, and and that is that yeah, there are some people who hold that in AD seventy that the abomination of desolation could have been the Romans who came in there. But if we look at the total picture of Scripture, I was trying to find that the, the little point in one of the books here. I have. If we look at the totality of the picture that's being painted, uh, the pieces that's been put, placed together. If you look at Ezekiel, the final part of Ezekiel, you look at the other passages of Scripture, you see that there will be this temple rebuilt. So, at some point in time, later on, if that's to be tr- to be trusted, and if that's to be true, then there, then there has to be that abomination of desolation, that future Antichrist who would uh, come about. So anyhow, if you look at the totality totality of the prophecy, then it begins to make better sense. Uh, I couldn't find all my materials there while we were going through that. So going back to your question, what insights do we have concerning prophecy? What does it tell us of the unity of the entire Scripture? To answer the first question, I think that you know when we talk about messianic prophecies, when we look at one, that's great. Look at two, even better. But when we see the total picture that's being painted, again, think of it being like a puzzle. You have all these different pieces smattered out throughout the entire Old Testament. When they're placed together and they're pieced together, you begin to see a picture being painted, a portrait that's already been painted in times past, and that portrait Mm -hmm. paints 
or, or that portrait is of Jesus of Nazareth. It's to the level and degree that if Jesus is not the Messiah, there can't be one. He has already fulfilled so many of these prophecies. There are many yet to be fulfilled that will be fulfilled. So as we think of the Christmas season and the duality of it, in the one sense we're thankful, we're appreciative of the incarnation of the first advent when Christ came to become one of us. But we also await with great anticipation of the time that when the rest of these prophecies will be fulfilled, when he returns and finishes mm-hmm. the job. And when he does, what a great and glorious day that's going to be. What? And when we talk of the unity of Scripture, I think that we clearly see, as we've already mentioned, that the Old Testament and New Testament fit together like hand in glove. The Old Testament, this has often been said, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. They really go like hand to, together like hand in glove. Important stuff to be paying attention to, folks. So, we here at Bellator Christi want to thank you for spending time together with us, and we value that time. Our prayer is that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christi podcast. Until next time, Brian and I say, so we friends. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com the opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates the Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under creative commons copyright all rights reserved the opening theme is the song crucified written by John and Michaela Limanis performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Hi, I'm Dave Baggett. I'm the director of the Center for the Foundations of Ethics, previously called the Center for Moral Apologetics, at Houston Baptist University, which in this fraught cultural moment of eroding moral foundations exists to explore the ultimate questions about ethics. What explains intrinsic human value, for example, or what accounts for authoritative moral obligations or essential human equality or basic human rights? We aim to foster a community of scholars from an array of disciplines to delve into these questions with care and rigor. In the process, we hope to highlight the evidential significance of bedrock and axiomatic moral truths when it comes to matters of the human condition and ultimate reality. In June of 2022, we will be kicking off our certificate program in moral apologetics, a four-course sequence on the history of the moral argument, a course defending moral realism, a course defining and defending theistic ethics, 
and a course that reveals the shortcomings of secular ethical theories. So check it out on the HBU website and at our own website, moralapologetics.com. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristi.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristi.com now and submit your question. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. <laughs>